Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with tomorrow's NATO summit, ahead of which we have just learned that Turkey's Erdogan has dropped his objections to Sweden joining the alliance. Joining us to discuss alternatives to joining NATO, such as Ukraine modelling its future security on Israel, which is something Zelensky has suggested, is Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and we will discuss his article at the New York Times, Joining NATO Won't Keep the Peace in Ukraine. Then we'll get a Ukrainian perspective on how the counteroffensive underway is going since the U.S. and NATO's vacillation over supplying arms has allowed Russia plenty of time to build formidable defenses, as well as what Zelensky wants from the NATO summit, and speak with Oksana Chevelle, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Tufts University and an associate at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. She's the author of Migration, Refugee Policy and State Building in Post-Communist Europe. Then finally, we'll examine how more than 1,500 lobbyists in the U.S. are working on behalf of fossil fuel companies, while at the same time representing hundreds of liberal-run cities, universities, technology companies, and environmental groups, ranging from the city of Los Angeles, Chicago, and Philadelphia, to tech giants Apple, Microsoft, and Google, as well as more than 150 universities and some of the country's leading environmental groups. Joining us is James Browning, the founder and executive director of F minus, with more than 20 years' experience in nonprofit fundraising and development, political organizing, strategic communications, and planning, coalition building, and political lobbying. He's the author of The Fracking King, and he has just released a new database at F minus, which exposes the extent to which fossil fuel lobbyists also represent people being harmed by the climate crisis. And joining us now is Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and he has an article at the New York Times, Joining NATO Won't Keep the Peace in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Wertheim. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. Of course, on Tuesday, the NATO summit begins in Vilnius, Lithuania, uh, lasting for two days already. Turkey's President Erdogan met with Zelensky a few days ago and agreed that Ukraine should join NATO. But of course, he'd been blocking Sweden. But now we're just learning that Erdogan has decided to let Sweden join NATO. But in general, President Biden said today, something that's fairly obvious. If, if Ukraine were to join NATO right away, then they'd be subject to Article 5 of the treaty, which would mean that the U.S. and NATO would have to go to war to defend Ukraine against a Russian attack. Well, the Russian attack is, all, is over 500 days long, and the war is on. So it would, in effect, amount to a declaration of war against Russia, uh, which is obviously insane at this moment. So... Was the president saying the obvious? So what do you expect this summit to achieve? There are a number of things to look for coming out of this summit. One, as you mentioned, will be Ukraine's status or future status uh, as a potential member of NATO. Let's come back to that. But I think uh, as people dwell on that particular issue, 
it's unlikely that Ukraine is going to get an invitation at this summit. President Biden has made that pretty clear. Uh, some perhaps more important things are going overlooked, uh, including the fact that at the summit, uh, the allies will give approval to some very detailed plans on defending NATO territory, existing NATO territory uh, against Russia. Uh, this marks a, a, a greater seriousness of purpose for NATO in its core territorial defense mission than we've seen for some time after the Cold War. And then um, the members will make a new pledge about what their respective national contributions will be. It may be a reiteration of the pledge to spend at least 2% uh, of gross domestic product on the military. Less than half of NATO members uh, have met that goal. This is a very longstanding goal. And some of the most important members of NATO are the ones that haven't met that goal, such as uh, Germany. So those are some of the, I think, you know, really important issues. But but um, making the headlines will be the, the treatment of Ukraine. And you alluded to the statement that President Biden uh, made over the weekend. He pointed out, look, we can't admit Ukraine to NATO now while the conflict is ongoing, because that would obligate the United States and NATO to go to war uh, on behalf of Ukraine uh, with Russia directly. And it's pretty clear almost nobody in the United States or uh, or across the alliance wants to do that. But President Biden, I think, also subtly contradicted himself when he said that, nevertheless, there are these criteria that Ukraine might be able to meet in the future, at which point it uh, would become desirable for Ukraine to enter the alliance. Well, if it's not in the interest of the United States to go to war in defense of Ukraine uh, with Russia directly today, then why would the United States, even if Ukraine passes all the criteria that that one would wish for, why would the United States commit itself in the future to do exactly that, to go to war uh, over Ukraine with Russia? So by holding out the prospect that Ukraine one day might join NATO, the president seems to be contradicting the the very sound logic with which he's acting in the current crisis. Well, it looks as though it's the Baltic states and Poland that are pushing for Ukraine's immediate entry. Is that your understanding? Yeah, it's uh, the states that are uh, closest to the front lines with Russia uh, that uh, are most supportive of Ukraine's own desire to, to get into NATO as soon as possible. I think they can see that uh, that Ukraine isn't going to be uh, led into the alliance during the war. It's very difficult to see how that would how that would be worked out. So I think what we'll probably see after the Vilnius summit concludes is supporters of Ukraine's membership in NATO will will kind of get on the same page to advocating uh, Ukraine's membership after the current conflict ends. So just to touch on your recent article, the New York Times, uh, Stephen Wertheim, joining NATO won't keep the peace in Ukraine. You write, in the run-up to the NATO summit in 2008, President George W. Bush had a meeting before 
this summit with William Burns, who's now the CIA director, but he was then ambassador to Russia. And he cautioned Bush that such a move would have deadly consequences. He said Ukraine's entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. And it would create fertile soil for Russian meddling in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Well, that's exactly what happened. So what happened in that meeting then? I mean, was was Dick Cheney in the meeting by any chance? <laughs> well, you quoted from uh, from an email that, that Burns sent uh, when he was in Moscow. Uh, I believe he was in Moscow, but in any case, uh, that was early in 2008 when he was the U.S. ambassador to Russia. Uh, I think what's pretty clear is that uh, the logic of Burns's argument did not convince George W. Bush, and George W. Bush went to the NATO summit that year in Bucharest and actually pushed for Ukraine and Georgia to uh, to be uh, essentially uh, put on a path to NATO membership, to be given what what's called a membership action plan uh, to monitor uh, their completion of criteria that would then lead to them joining NATO. And what happened at that conference is that, uh, you know, and I should say, uh, Bill Burns was hardly alone at that time. There were other uh, people like senior uh, intelligence officials, such as uh, Fiona Hill, who were also warning that giving Ukraine a roadmap to joining NATO would produce uh, a violent reaction, or at least uh, would run a high risk of doing so from Moscow. So, the result was because uh, America's allies didn't want to let Ukraine or Georgia into NATO. The result was this really funny compromise where NATO declared that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, but then did very little to actually bring that prospect about. And so today, as people look back, regardless of where they stand on whether Ukraine should ultimately join NATO or not, there's a high uh, degree of agreement uh, that that approach from 2008 was a mistake, that the waiting room is a dangerous place for Ukraine and for Georgia because it is provocative to Russia without providing actual security to uh, to Ukraine or, or Georgia. Well, surely, Stephen, it's a, not a coincidence, is it, that Russia has gone to war against both Ukraine and Georgia? I certainly don't think it is. Now, in the wake of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine a uh, little more than 500 days ago, I think there's been some eagerness by policymakers, uh, former policymakers, and people who rightly want to support Ukraine and combat the Russian narrative about the war to say that this war has absolutely nothing to do with the history of NATO enlargement or the uh, potential for Ukraine to become a member of NATO. Uh, I think they've overdrawn the case. Uh, it's certainly true that there was no uh, near-term prospect of Ukraine joining NATO when Vladimir Putin launched the invasion in February of last year. Uh, but on the other hand, as we've discussed, since 2008, the alliance had declared that Ukraine would become a member of NATO. And uh, for a number of years, there had been growing security cooperation between uh, NATO forces and Ukrainian forces, which may go part of the way in explaining uh, the somewhat surprising effectiveness of Ukraine's forces in the wake of the full-scale invasion. Uh, so I think it will be really important. You know, I think 
the propaganda phase of the war should be over insofar as uh, I think we've seen globally the countries that are going to support Ukraine, they're supporting Ukraine, countries that are not are not. That's probably not going to change unless uh, battlefield conditions change considerably. Uh, but it'd be really important not to sort of overdraw the argument. Uh, yes, Russia's imperialistic, but for the very same reason, Russia also doesn't want to see a foreign, uh, historically anti-Russian military alliance uh, be extended to a country that uh, that it uh, wants to have a lot of influence in, if if not control. So I think uh, if that's true today, we can expect it to be true uh, in the future. And that's why I say that it's really hard to see what um, what possible time could be right for Ukraine to join NATO. I think it's going to be a provocation to Russia to try to make moves to bring Ukraine into the alliance, whether Putin is in charge of Russia or a successor. And uh, therefore, bringing Ukraine into NATO wouldn't provide, in the specific case of Ukraine, the kind of uh, really strong security guarantee that uh, that Ukraine and, and its supporters would like. So Prigozhin, who now we're learning that uh, he had a meeting with Putin five days after the so-called mutiny, he's been saying that Russia's essentially losing the war. He praises Ukraine, and Ukraine has a million men and women under arms and is obviously doing very well, even though it's taking them a little longer in their counteroffensive uh, because of the Russian engineers have been very effective in laying down defenses. But what Prigozhin has said, and I'm wondering whether Putin's on the same page, is that Russia has to sort of accept defeat, hunker down, cut its ties off with the West, build up its military-industrial complex and come back with a more effective military in maybe five years. Do you think that's in the cards? I don't see that being in the cards today. I mean, it, it is hard to predict Vladimir Putin's decision-making, and to be clear, it's it's his decision-making that really counts in Moscow, not uh, Prigozhin's agitation from the sidelines. I do wonder whether the... Uh, the odd mutiny that Prigozhin launched a few weeks ago will cause Putin to uh, change his calculation about the costs and the unpredictability of continuing to wage war on Ukraine. War can just stir up things that one couldn't have foreseen, and I think he he should he couldn't have foreseen uh, at least when he launched the invasion in February of last year what happened from Prigozhin a few weeks ago. So perhaps that will alter his decision-making slightly, but Vladimir Putin has staked his credibility, his leadership uh, on waging this war, and they're just not uh, really signs that uh, he's prepared to, to stop it, whether for a period of time only to come back or, um, or for, for good. Now, perhaps at the end of this year, uh, as Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive, which is ongoing, uh, comes to an end, there might be an opportunity for a ceasefire to be brokered. Um, but we're some ways away from that. Well, I, I've spoken a number of times recently on this program with Charles Kupchin, who had a meeting with uh, Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov back in April. And apparently what was discussed was the idea of a demilitarized zone 
between the two countries. It seems that Ukraine's strategy now is to break through into the Sea of Azov and Mariupol and cut Crimea off and then bargain Crimea back in exchange for getting the Russians out of the Donbass. Do you think that's a possible scenario? And how could a DMZ work? It's a possible scenario. Um, it's right now, it's hard to say because we have to see the results of the counteroffensive so far. I think the Ukrainians themselves have admitted that uh, it's been tougher going than they might have expected to this point, but it is too soon to to judge the results of the entire counteroffensive. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure that there are any particular conditions on the ground that would, uh, you know, cross some threshold where we could say, yes, this is acceptable uh, to both sides so that we could see both sides implement a ceasefire. Remember, high-level diplomacy hasn't occurred between the Ukrainians and the Russians that we know about for more than a year. So it's been a very long time. And uh, frankly, I'm glad that uh, uh, Charlie Kupchan and, and others have participated in these unofficial so-called track two dialogues because, you know, if there is an opportunity uh, to see the killing cease or stop, um, we can miss that opportunity if some kind of groundwork hasn't been laid first. And of course, the White House has disavowed any connections to Charlie Kupchin's efforts, right? They have. These are just uh, unofficial experts, but I think it's been reported that uh, that the White House has been informed about the the results of those conversations. So, Stephen, just in the last couple of minutes, then, do you think? I mean, obviously, looking back on what if is a kind of you know pointless exercise, but nevertheless. Do you think it would have been possible to have expanded the EU eastward and not NATO eastward? In other words, head of a sort of neutral zone in Central Europe? I mean, you can't deny the Ukrainian people the desire to have the rule of law and a decent economy and ties to Europe. Because after all, what Putin offers is kind of gangster government like Lukashenko next door in Belarus. So do you think it would have been possible to have EU expansion as opposed to NATO expansion eastward? I love what-if questions. I'm a historian. I think counterfactuals are absolutely essential, by the way. And yeah, I think uh, it uh, it might well have been feasible uh, to rely on EU expansion rather than NATO expansion uh, coming out of the uh, Cold War. Uh, one of the advantages is that NATO had been an alliance historically aimed at Moscow, meant to deter the Soviet Union turned Russia uh, from attacking NATO territory. Uh, and the Russians themselves, uh, or the Soviets turned Russians, were clear that uh, they were disbanding the Warsaw Pact. So why was NATO continuing to exist? And then and then expanding into countries that had previously been in the Soviet orbit. Uh, now, the EU also uh, could have taken on a greater role in security and caused uh, tensions with Russia had it expanded in a similar way. And perhaps if the U.S. had had less of a role in European security and Europeans had had more, um, you know, we might see, of course, the same kind of tensions that we see today. But I think the probability uh, of Russian blowback would have been reduced in that 
in that what if world that you have uh, helpfully uh, put into our minds. So just in closing, back to the article, you, you mentioned here that in terms of a post-war Ukraine, Zelensky himself has suggested that Ukraine should adopt an Israeli model, building a large advanced army with a formidable defense industrial base with extensive external support. Could that be the final result or in terms of some kind of compromise? Yes, I think that's uh, something that we will see progress toward coming out of this summit or shortly thereafter uh, as more countries make longer term agreements to keep Kiev well-trained and well-supplied from a military and economic standpoint. This, I think, is a realistic path uh, to security for Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has shown that even without the kind of massive uh, Western assistance, that it's been able to defend itself and impose incredible costs uh, on Russian forces and, and on Russian society, perhaps. And so I think, you know, that is a significant deterrent. It's not to be underestimated. And the more that people fixate on NATO being the end-all, be-all for Ukraine's security, I think actually the more uh, prone to um, unwarranted pessimism they might be when they look at the so-called Israel model as an alternative, it's actually going to take an incredibly ambitious effort by Ukraine's international partners to reconstruct this country, a huge country that has been devastated by this war, uh, and to supply it on an ongoing basis. And by the way, build up Ukraine's own defense industrial base. That will be very, very important. So that's a major undertaking. And I think the more uh, people focus on on that avenue, uh, that's a concrete avenue to the defense of, of Ukraine, the better we'll all be. Well, Stephen Wertheim, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. He's the author of Tomorrow of the World, The Birth of the U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and has an article at the New York Times, Joining NATO Won't Keep the Peace in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with the Ukrainian perspective on how the counteroffensive underway is going and what Zelensky wants from the NATO summit.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Oksana Chevelle, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Tufts University and associate at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. And she's the author of Migration, Refugee Policy and State Building in Post-Communist Europe. Welcome to Background Briefing, Oksana Chevelle. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And Tuesday, the NATO summit begins. I guess the good news is that uh, Turkey has dropped its objections to Sweden entering uh, NATO. But it's not entirely clear that uh, President Zelensky is going to show up. So what do you think Ukraine wants out of this uh, summit? Um, yes. Uh, well, it looks like um, that Zelensky will likely show up. Um, and um, the thing which Ukraine is looking for is a very clear signal and a clear path to NATO membership. For example, they've talked about um, joining without membership action plan. And actually, um, in the news today, in the Ukrainian news, uh, Ukrainian foreign minister was cited as saying that NATO agreed to cancel membership action plan for Ukraine. I think Ukrainians understand that they can't um, join when the war is going on, but I think they want very clear statement that um, they can, in fact, join very soon. And it won't be some sort of third way, some kind of, um, you know, um, halfway membership or um, alternative arrangement, but it would be full-fledged membership because they feel that they both deserve it and that that's essential for both their security and broader European security. And in terms of ammunition shortages... Obviously, sending cluster munitions have been controversial. There's supposed to be a substitute in some way for the lack of 155mm howitzer shells. I mean, for the longest time, the Western and NATO countries have delayed sending equipment and ammunition, etc. My understanding is that Ukraine goes through in one day as many howitzer shells as the only one U.S. factory in Pennsylvania produces in a month. So is there any sense that uh, this gap is going to be filled? Yes, I mean, this is one of the concerns. And I would say it's concerned, probably broader speaking, for NATO and Western allies. Like, can they, if Russia can out produce them in ammunition, right? Imagine there is a conflict even, say, without Ukraine at some point. Would that be a big problem? So I think ramping up um, probably production of ammunition, I would imagine, is on the agenda for the Western allies um, regardless. And Ukrainians feel, and I think um, this is the debate we already see in the media, and I'm sure it will continue, that if, say, counteroffensive is slower than planned or not as successful as, you know, many hope, is this because um, of insufficient supply? of the weaponry that Ukraine has been asking, both ammunition and, you know, other types of heavy weaponry. Uh, so the Ukrainian position is that if we have the tools, we can kind of accomplish what we need. But the sooner these tools come in, the better, because obviously the more the delay, the more Russians get entrenched um, and so forth. So I think the production of ammunition is probably an issue that has broader implications for, you know, Western security kind of military thinking. Um, and Ukraine actually also, I would imagine, especially down the road, would be producing much more. It had substantial military-industrial complex during the Soviet period. A lot of these factories then, you know, began doing some sort of other things or closed altogether. But I think just recently it was reported in the Ukrainian media that they now produce more ammunition just in the last few months than was produced in the entire of last year. 
So it seems to me that this is, you know, the issue that has broader implications that is being addressed. Um, but in the short term, it definitely has impact on the situation in the battlefield. So again, this um, urgency that I think we hear in many of the Ukrainian official statements that we need, you know, F-16 sooner, we needed all sorts of heavy weaponry sooner. I think we will continue hearing that. And what is the Ukrainian media saying about the counteroffensive? A lot of uh, analysts over here are making a lot of noise about how it's slow, etc., etc. So Ukraine is either facing defeat or not achieving its goals. What are you hearing? Well, there is certainly no talk of defeat um, in the Ukrainian media or in the official statements. What I think we do hear is sort of this twofold emphasis. First of all, that, yes, progress is not as fast as, you know, maybe some have hoped or even as Ukrainians themselves would have hoped. But there is progress. I mean, they've been reporting, you know, around Bakhmut um, and uh, elsewhere where they are slowly but still able to advance. Um, and secondly, the preservation of Ukrainian military men, soldiers' lives is a very important priority, and I think that resonates with the population. So I don't get a sense from Ukrainian media that this sort of sense that we see in some of the Western media that, oh, is it moving too slow? Is it potentially failed? Like there is none of that um, in, the, in the Ukrainian media. And I think the population is also, you know, obviously everybody wants a fast victory, but these are Ukrainian men who are dying at the front. Um, so in a way... Um, kind of, you know, not having a timeline, but having this balance over preserving life and maybe advancing slower, I think it's acceptable for Ukrainian society. Now, if we fast forward several months, if, you know, the cold weather sets in another winter and still, you know, there isn't much progress, I mean, that might be a different story. But certainly at the moment, there is, I don't sense, you know, from Ukrainian media, any kind of sense of impatience or disillusionment um, with what has been happening. But in terms of casualties, we don't know what the numbers are. But estimates are that the Russians have lost between 200 and 300,000, and then Ukraine has lost about 100,000, and 40,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed. Do those figures make sense to you? Well, as you said, we don't have any official statistics, so it's hard, you know, to know what's reported in the media, right, in Western media, the estimates of some intelligence um, agencies. I, you know, I have no sort of inside the knowledge to say whether these figures are or not accurate. But I mean, clearly there has been, you know, very big loss of life. And Ukraine is a smaller country than Russia. Like they can't afford even mathematically to just throw people at the problem, let alone that this is not kind of the political culture and the mental mindset. So I think the fact that, you know, say the advance, if they hit strongly fortified defenses, instead of trying to send, you know, what Russia has been doing around Bakhmut, the so-called meat assaults, when Wagner and other soldiers were just thrown in at waves and, you know, if 80% gets killed, nobody cares. That's certainly not acceptable for Ukraine. So I think for the Ukrainian commanders, that's probably a constraint that maybe Russian commanders don't face, so certainly not to the same extent. Um, so, yes, so I think um, both, you know, as you said, these numbers that you're saying, they may well be credible, I really don't know. But clearly, there has been very substantial loss of life, and we don't know if we think about civilians. Mariupol comes to mind, where which has been totally leveled, and we don't have anything resembling credible figures as to how many civilians died there under the rubble. So I think preservation of life, even if it comes at the cost of a slower um, offensive, um, I think that, at least as I said for the moment, seems to be acceptable both for the society and for the political elite. Well, apparently the Russian Engineering Corps, uh, one of the f few professional parts left in the 
Russian military, and apparently they've done a pretty extensive job in three layers of, of defense, which is why the Ukrainian counteroffensive is taking longer, because it's really hard to pry people out of these trenches with all of the landmines, etc. But what we're also hearing is that when the Ukrainians are able to break through to the Russian lines, that the Russian soldiers uh, more often than not want to surrender, and then when they're debriefed, they say, and this has been going on for, since the war began, that their officers abandon them, they steal money from them. It sounds like the Russian military is, is nothing more than a kind of mafia kind of gang. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, mafia analogy is a good one. It's more sort of like the Potemkin village, you know, the expression that on the face of it may look something and in reality it's something quite different and much weaker. I think the fact that the Russian military is not this, you know, strong number two in the world, we already know. I mean, otherwise they were planning to be in Kiev in, what, three days? Uh, but um, I think this, um, this this fortifications that they had had time to build again, you know, in the Ukrainian media and uh, commentary, public commentary, you see you hear this great frustration that they were allowed this time to do this, right? So in other words, had Ukrainians, I mean, that's how this argument goes in Ukraine, had they had the tools from the Western allies sooner, you know, had these debates whether to give them this type of armament or not to give it, like how long it took to get leopards. Germany used to send, you know, helmets originally only, right, before they're sending these battle machines. So if all of this had taken place quicker, then the Russians would have less time to dig in, then the counteroffensive would have been easier to implement, right, liberation of territory and potential end of war, all of these things. So, and my understanding is that now the strategy of the Ukrainian military is exactly that, to kind of probe these Russian defensive fortifications, because they don't even have enough manpower to sort of fully man them against something we are hearing. So, yes, they are fortified engineering, construction, so forth. But if you break through, then you are facing, just like you said, the army that is maybe not all that motivated or not that many of them or both. So again, it, we may see this sort of grinding um, attempts to break through, but then if, if and when they do manage to break through how many lines of defense the Russians built, then it might begin to collapse much quicker, or at least that's um, what many hope. At this point, it's hard to say. I think it's plausible. Certainly, is it a guarantee? I would say probably not, but we wouldn't really know until I think um, some more time has passed. So, Oksana, why do you think that the West, particularly the United States and Germany, have set these red lines, and we can't possibly send you tanks, we can't possibly send you F-16s, etc. It's happened on every weapon system that the Ukrainians have asked for since the beginning, and even before this war. And you recall that the first thing that the Germans sent were 5,000 helmets, which they made a big deal out of. So... Obviously, it, they're, they're stepping up more now, but they set the red line, and then months later, they they reverse themselves, and they send the tanks, and they send the, the heavy artillery, and all of the things they said they couldn't possibly send earlier. And as you point out, the Ukrainians are now paying the price of these months, months long delays. What do you think is going on? Why do you think they the U.S. and Germany in particular set red lines dither for a, a few months and then eventually cross the same red line that they set for themselves. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, as you said, it's very frustrating. I certainly hear this frustration from the Ukrainians all the time that, you know, yes, you see, it takes time to train on F-16s, but if you try started training sooner, right, then you can have ready pilots sooner. And this sort of, you know, very increment um, 
allocation of weapons and then again deciding to allocate things that originally were red lines. So I think that's all the cause of great frustration. I think the broader reason for it is probably the West, you know, Germany and the U.S. have been very cautious trying to avoid any kind of conflict, direct conflict with Russia. So, for example, the concern is that if Ukrainians received certain type of far-reaching missiles, that then these missiles could be launched um, in the targets at the Russian territory proper, right? And then Putin might say, oh, I'm at war with you know, NATO, and what if he uses nuclear weapons? So I think it is that sort of like worst-case scenario um, thinking, or at least I think it's a part of the Western caution. But I think it's also the reason they're changing, one of the reasons that um, the West, then after a period of hesitation, then decides to allocate more weapons, uh, I think it's also because it's becoming very unclear, and I would say it probably was unclear from the beginning, where exactly are Putin's red lines, right? Like he talks the, t- the tough talk. He has said from his invasion speech when he launched this invasion that he threatened consequences, quote, like you've never seen in your history for anybody who helps Ukraine. So I think that kind of language probably scared many decision makers in Western capitals because it was an implicit threat of nuclear weapons. But clearly, since then, a lot of things have happened that you would have think that Putin's red lines have been crossed, right, from the sinking of the Moskva ship, from liberation of the territories that they annexed formally according to Russian constitution into Russia. So that was an attack on the Russian territory, if you go by the letter of the Russian law, right? Finland and Sweden joining NATO, barely a pipsqueak um, from, from Moscow. So I think probably it may be beginning to set in the Western capitals that um, that this sort of fear mongering on the part of Russia, especially as far as use of nuclear weapons, which of course is the scenario everybody wants to avoid, is probably not very likely. I mean, Putin is not a suicidal leader, or at least we don't you know, have really any evidence to think that he is so far. So I think that's when the West kind of changes its mind and decides to allocate um, more and more weapons. And again, you know, as I was saying, Ukrainians are incredibly frustrated about this pattern. But I think the main concern on the West is to avoid some sort of, you know, confrontation, direct confrontation with Russia and certainly any kind of nuclear exchange or possibility of a nuclear strike. Yeah, but in the last few minutes, though, Oksana, Putin's set red lines recently with Prigozhin. You know, he said the guy's a criminal, a traitor. Uh, stabbed us in exactly. the back. And then we'd find out that a few days later he met with Prigozhin. So and nothing that, happens. Yes, and not much happens. So I think that was definitely, you know, we, we don't know that all the speculations, you know, what, what was all this so-called uh, mutiny or coup about. But I think what is clear from that, that Putin really showed himself as a much weaker person, a much weaker leader. And I think this was, again, another, you know, thing that Ukrainians keep saying, that I don't think anybody in the West, West really listened all that much, that Putin is a bully, right? So there is this sort of, like, the more you give in, and there is a pattern to this behavior. We can start, you know, with Georgia, right? Like, not much happened, then we have Crimea again, not much happened, then we have, you know, this full-scale invasion. And when, you know, he's confronted and pushed, he he backs off. I mean, again, we can't generalize that it's like this in every single, you know, each instance is unique. But this idea that, um, you know, the, I don't know what you want to call it, mentality, approach, image he wants to project, I think has been really shattered additionally with Prigozhin mutiny, for sure. So again, maybe the Western willingness to, you know, extend the kind of military engagement and aid to Ukraine that before they were really wary about, um, I think that con- is a contributing factor, the way the Prigozhin incident unfolded. I think it's a contributing factor to influencing Western decision-making as well. 
So just in the last couple of minutes then, Oksana, Prigozhin must still have something that Putin needs. Otherwise, he would be thrown from a seventh floor window. Uh, Obviously, he's got some leverage still. What do you think it is? Why Why is he still alive? Mm-hmm. It is really a mystery to me, too. I mean, honestly, like I thought he would be like, you know, as they joke in Russia, like, is it window or tea, right? Like you either fall out of the window or you have some poisonous tea. And here he is, you know, around and so forth. What I think uh, analysts of Russia have speculated or suggested, which seems plausible to me, is that he has, he must have backers um, in the hierarchy of the government. So he wasn't this necessarily lone wolf. So I think that is probably... Uh, true. So if again, if if Putin has to weigh the danger over taking over Prigozhin and potentially alienating more people um, in the leadership, and what if they try to do something like Khrushchev ouster, right? Like if I mean again, I don't we don't expect. I don't think we would anybody seriously expect some kind of popular uprising in Russia. But why is it not realistic? I think it is certainly plausible that some number of the Russian elites can get together and send Putin into retirement, right? And if he knows that Prigozhin has backers um, in among some of such elites, that that would be one reason why he's not, you know, he's still alive and hasn't fallen out of the window. And maybe another reason is that, again, his troops, for all they are, you know, the criminals, the prisoners, so forth, they seem to be the most effective part of the Russian military. So if they want to keep sort of the goodwill of Prigozhin also for military strategic reasons, right? Like these troops were instrumental in the capture of Bakhmut, although now it seems like Bakhmut, you know, may be in the, in the cards again. But anyway, so kind of alienation of the most battle-ready, uh, battle-hardened and potentially most competent or one of the most competent units or part of the armed forces in the midst of this war that is not going great for them, I think also maybe is the kind of risk that he's factoring in. So again, not knowing anything from the inside, to me, these two things that have been mentioned in the discussion, that there are backers of Prigozhin in the hierarchy of the Russian leadership and sort of this military strategic calculation given that his troops are more competent than many other Russian troops might be the reason why he's still alive and nothing happened to him. Well, Alexander Chevel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Oksana Chevel, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Tufts University and an associate at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. And she's the author of Migration, Refugee Policy and State Building in Post-Communist Europe. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a guest who just exposed the extent to which fossil fuel lobbyists also represent people being harmed by the climate crisis. I have breathed all the sea. You're our fan, prophecy. Our destiny, we will not. When the sun comes up, it will be on your side. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. 
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Browning, the founder and executive director of F- with more than 20 years' experience in non-profit fundraising and development, political organizing, strategic communications and planning, coalition building and political lobbying. He's the author of The Fracking King and he's just released a new database at F- which exposes the extent to which fossil fuel lobbyists also represent people being harmed by the climate crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Browning. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, James. And I take it you supplied a lot of information to The Guardian. They just ran an article a few days ago, Double Agents, Fossil Fuel Lobbyists Work for U.S. Groups Trying to Fight Climate Crisis. And the article reveals that more than 1,500 lobbyists in the U.S. are working on behalf of fossil fuel companies, while at the same time representing hundreds of liberal-run cities, universities, technology companies, and environmental groups that say they are tackling the climate crisis, and that these lobbyists for oil and gas and coal interests are also employed by a vast sweep of institutions ranging from the city governments of Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, tech giants such as Apple and Google, and more than 150 universities and some of the country's leading environmental groups. So this is really an alarming piece of news. So is this a combination of what the Guardian refers to as being double agents, or is this some new form of greenwashing? I mean, it it almost smacks of the the Sackler family, who basically are responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Americans and yet have put their names on all kinds of art museums. So walk us through what's going on here, if you will. The fossil fuel industry knows perfectly well what it's doing uh, by having lobbyists who also represent um, arts institutions, universities, cities suffering from climate change, and what it's doing is uh, cloaking uh, what's really a radical agenda in respectability. And, you know, that agenda, further use of fossil fuels is, is a radical agenda at this point. And so what it gets when it hires these lobbyists who also uh, represent all of these benevolent organizations, schools and hospitals and charities, uh, is people who are quite popular in state capitals um, because they are working for charitable causes. They are, um, you know, helping, um, you know, disadvantaged, you know, children and, you know, bringing in, um, you know, money for disadvantaged communities. And for those other clients, let's say, you know, the schools or, the, or the, you know, the museums or the conservation groups, it can be very tempting to overlook the fact that these lobbyists also work for oil and gas companies, because they're bringing you this money, they're bringing you victories, some of them are very charming people. And so really for decades, this very dangerous dynamic has gone on, where people in state capitals feel like it's okay to work with these lobbyists, but really we've reached a point in the climate crisis where it's it's not okay, and people need to cut ties with them. Well, right here in Los Angeles, uh, in the city of Culver City, the article mentions a former mayor, Megan Sally Wells, who spearheaded a move to ban oil drilling near homes and schools in Culver City, and only to find that oil and gas interests were also lobbying for the city and had spent $34 million across California lobbying lawmakers and state agencies to mobilize against the very ban. I mean, that's having a traitor in your midst, And, of course, she says, which I think is really the key phrase here, 
you shouldn't be funding the person who is poisoning you. Megan Sally Wells makes a very important point, which is these are these are public dollars going to hire fossil fuel lobbyists to also work for lo- local governments. Um, and if you look at California and communities facing some of the worst impacts of the climate crisis, they're being they're being sold out by their own city or county governments, and it's coming out of their taxes. Um, and so this is where people have an opportunity um, to, to say no more um, and to demand that some of these cities and counties cut ties with fossil fuel lobbyists. But let's talk about some of the environmental groups that are right on the front lines waging the good fight, apparently, yet they are sharing lobbyists. For example, the Environmental Defense Fund shares lobbyists with ExxonMobil, Calpine and Duke Energy. And a lobbyist for the Natural Resources Defense Council, Action Front, also worked on behalf of the mining company, BHP. Oftentimes, environmental groups um, hiring oil and gas lobbyists or coal lobbyists are making a short-term calculation that they can get some, some access or you know, pass some bill this uh, year. But it is, it is a dangerous bargain, and it is not worth it if the result is to legitimize um, the fossil fuel industry. And if you, if you flip this around, if you think about, okay, what are the environmental groups getting out of this? Think of what the fossil fuel lobbyists get out of it. If you only represent ExxonMobil, if you only represent the Coke companies, um, there are a lot of lawmakers who are just not going to meet with you and not going to return your calls. But if you can go in and say, oh, it's fine, I also work for this conservation group, then you have a conversation and then you have a connection. So the, the really dangerous thing here is that these environmental groups are validating and legitimizing these lobbyists and allowing them to paint themselves as environmentalists. So the universities, 150 of them, have lobbyists uh, that they pay for that also work for fossil fuel companies. And you would think that given the student activism on campus about uh, global warming, thank God that the younger generation and the young activists like Greta Thunberg are leading the fight here. But do they know about it? Do the kids know about how they're getting sold out by their own university? Um, Not only do um, students, um, I think probably most of them don't understand the extent to which they're being sold out by their own universities, but a lot of people at these universities don't know how complicit they are with the fossil fuel industry because the way lobbying works historically is you you go to a firm um, and you say, you know, are there any conflicts? And this is a really important point. In, in lobbying law in every state, the only real conflict is that you can't lobby for and against the, the exact same piece of legislation. There's nothing to prevent someone working for BP or Marathon or Shell. At the same time, they're representing a university facing catastrophic climate problems. So if you take an example like you know, Syracuse University in New York State, which was actually a leader in divesting its endowment from fossil fuels, they have a lobbying firm in New York that has 14 different fossil fuel clients, including uh, the Coke companies. And this is a part of the state where they had code maroon air days from the smoke coming down from fire, which means you just you can't even go outside. So when you reach the point that you can't even go outside, it's time to change your behavior. Well, you're quoted in the article, James, 
saying something which I think is really a key point here. Quote, People just assume that there's no alternative to the status quo, but it's time to take a side. It's all about who is in the room when decisions are made. And the only way to force change is to get these fossil fuel companies and their lobbyists out of the room. So the fact that they're in the room, not just lobbying politicians, but they're in the room with the very people that are trying to do something about climate change and that they are double agents and perhaps even saboteurs. This is a whole new front in the battle, isn't it? Uh, this is a whole new front, and it, it raises um, a lot of uncomfortable questions for the groups who've been uh, hiring these lobbyists and in some ways benefiting from them. And which side are you going to choose? Are you, are you going to choose any whatever short-term benefit you're getting from these lobbyists, or are you going to choose the larger uh, issue, which is, you know, at a time when um, people are uh, frightened about the climate crisis, when they're embracing the energy transition, these oil and gas and coal lobbyists are still very popular in state capitals because of the clients they have who are schools or charities or uh, groups doing good. So if you're a beneficiary of system, it is time um, to take a hard look at your lobbyists, other clients, at their fossil fuel clients. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a divestment call that should have gone out um, a long time ago. I actually tried to um, begin this project 20 years ago when I was an anti-tobacco lobbyist, and I knew someone who was working for both the American Lung Association for smoke-free restaurants, and the same person was working for the Maryland Automobile Dealers Association, cars being a source of carbon pollution, and challenged them, how do you, how do, you do this? How do you, how do you square these two things? And they said, oh, it's fine because um, cigarettes are a question of indoor air and cars are a question of outdoor um, air. And so that's the kind of disconnect we've been dealing with in state capitals. Uh, and it's time to disrupt that and ask people to take a side. Are you with the fossil fuel companies or are you going to be part of the climate solution? So I can see to some extent why these sort of two-faced lobbyists are being successful because they get tons of money from the fossil fuel company and they take jobs for far less money with schools and museums and charities and cities, etc., but what explains the big tech companies, which are the most powerful companies on the planet? You know, it used to be that ExxonMobil was the number one company in the world. But now it's Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. And all of them are professed to be all champions of dealing with global warming. But yet they're doing the same thing, aren't they? They're sharing lobbyists with the fossil fuel companies. Amazon um, last year shared lobbyists with fossil fuel companies in 27 states. So, so why did they choose these lobbyists? Uh, you know, part of it is is a business decision. You know, before there were big tech companies, you know, the, the, the big oil and gas companies and coal companies have been entrenched in these state capitals for a long time. So, uh, you know, what are you getting? You're getting the most um, powerful um, lobbyist in that state. So often it's a calculation, well, we just, we just want the top dog fighting for us. And either they look at the other clients and they say, well, that means, you know, this person's also working for ExxonMobil. This person's also working for the Cokes. And, you know, in every case, whether we're talking about Amazon doing this, Apple doing this, Google doing this, there are really only two answers here, which is that 
they, they didn't know the extent to which these lobbyists work for fossil fuel companies, uh, and, I, and I doubt that, or they decided it's worth the risk and there wouldn't be much price to pay. And honestly, there hasn't been a price to pay because this data is hard to get, and it hasn't been all put together in a national database before. But now it has, thanks to you. So just in closing then, James, you've alerted us to this outrage, but what's needed in terms of practical steps? Well, there's a very um, simple step um, that anyone can take, whether, you know, your, the, the company where you work um, has a fossil fuel lobbyist, the, the town where you live has a fossil fuel lobbyist, you can immediately call them out and ask them to cut ties. This is a, a fast-moving crisis that we are in now on climate, and yet we have this very slow-moving political system where you know, it's going to take decades to get the Supreme Court to a better place on climate. So if, if everyone, you see your own town, your own employer, your own school on this list, if you call on them to cut ties with these lobbyists, that's something that can happen right now, um, and it will change things in state capital, uh, and it will strip away some of the power that the industry has enjoyed for so long. So in other words, all the alarm about AI is well-founded, but this is a clear and present danger, what we're talking about. This is, this is happening right now. This is part of how we got into this mess, because there's, there's a disconnect where people see the damage the fossil fuel companies are doing. That's one thing, but, but then they see this lobbyist, you know, who may be a charming person who's bringing them, you know, money for their cause or their community, and they, they go for the money, or they, they go for the short-term wind, and they win, and they overlook the fact that this person is one of the architects of the climate crisis. And we, we can't keep doing that. We, ha- we have to um, delegitimize these lobbyists, and the way to do that is for other groups to fire them. Well, James Browning, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks very much. And again, I've been speaking with James Browning, who's the founder and executive director of F Minus, with more than 20 years' experience in nonprofit fundraising and development, political organizing, strategic communications and planning, coalition building, and political lobbying. He's the author of The Fracking King, and he has just released a new database at F Minus, which exposes the extent to which fossil fuel lobbyists are also representing people being harmed by the climate crisis. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Sing